This week on MuggleCast, it's a mini MuggleCast mailbag slash mini main discussion episode. Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the wizarding world. I am not Andrew, I'm Micah. And I am not Laura, I'm Eric. We made it. We did it. We figured out all the technology. It only took a couple of additional hours and uh, we're here. It's just Eric and I this week. We're live, everybody. This is MuggleCast. I think it's probably been a couple hundred episodes since you and I did one of these together. Yeah, I can't remember uh, any specifics, but it's definitely been a while. Of course, our fearless leader, Andrew, is off uh, celebrating his birthday. Happy birthday, Andrew. Happy birthday. And Laura's Lauren also could... off celebrating Andrew's birthday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But we didn't get the invite. So we're here holding down the fort for this, uh, as you said, Micah, mailbag episode. I'm excited for this because when putting this together, we said, no, we don't need to take a week off. We got this. Um, you know, our mailbag is always uh, overflowing. And no matter how many mails we read. Lots of owls. I feel very privileged to be getting this correspondence. And, um, you know, we're going to read a, a very large number of emails that we've gotten. Um, not voicemails, because I can't figure out how to do that yet. There are still some things only Andrew holds the key to on this show. But nevertheless, we did get into our mailbag. And I, I'm excited to do that, as well as the main discussion we have, a uh, question that you came up with, which I think is excellent. Yeah, I may have borrowed it from Andrew, but that's okay. He's not here. <laughs> but we thought We've spent a lot of time over the last couple of weeks talking about Secrets of Dumbledore. And as we look ahead, we want to know, what does Fantastic Beasts 4 need to be in order to be a satisfying story for fans? Before we jump into all of the Muggle Mail, we figured this is where we want to start. I want to have a nice little conversation here. And I want to know, Eric, what do you think, You know, with where Secrets of Dumbledore left us, what story is there to tell beyond what we've already got? Well, just going off the top of my head of questions I would like to see answered, which we've talked about before on the show since seeing the movie, how do Newt and Tina get together? Will they ever get together during these movies? That's something that I think shouldn't just be relegated to you know a side story of the next film. I would like to see the core four, the ones that we were introduced to in the first Fantastic Beasts film. I would like none of the core four to take a backseat. And I want to just see their characters. I want to know who these people are. Because in movie form, we've, I feel, been done a little bit of a disservice here in fully realizing these characters and their story. So to put it kind of succinctly as I can, movie four should be a return to basics. You've got this whole globe-trotting adventure, this whole Grindelwald taking over the world, the world war, which we know will probably have to happen at some point, maybe in the fifth film. For movie four, I want to see them strip it down, bare bones, just core four, maybe some Dumbledore because that's inevitable and Jude Law is great at it. But I just want to see a character-driven story. And do we feel like that's enough to fill an entire film though? Because we know there need to be other things that are happening at the same time. We've talked about getting us to 1945. Who knows where we are right now? Somewhere in the mid-1930s. We don't necessarily think that they have to stay exactly in line with the timeline, but it would certainly help given just how much they've been tied to what's been going on in the real world with World War II. So I'm just struggling here to figure out how they're going to fill 
two more movies to get us to a final battle that's going to be satisfying for Potter fans, for for fans of the Fantastic Beasts franchise. Well, my big issue is, you know, if there's one weak spot, and there are several, but if there's one weak spot in these films, it's when they try and do too many things, or it's when they try and balance character uh, building with exposition with whatever the heck is going on with Grindelwald. I think the last two movies, Crimes of Grindelwald and Secrets of Dumbledore, have deeply suffered because of the inclusion of some kind of plot that Grindelwald is up to. And even the moments we get with the characters that we love, I'm talking about the core four, are stripped and very kind of thin, I want to say. Even the, the greatest moments between Newt and Jacob uh, in this film, any one scene was very short. They were always getting off to something else. And I feel like the movie can't just rest. It can't just sit or be be kind of, I want to say, slow at times because it's always trying to do too much. So this whole having to work in the war, we know that they do, but I just am not looking forward to it. I think it's a recipe for disaster or a recipe for exactly the same type of movie we've seen so far, which isn't good enough. And we do feel like Secrets of Dumbledore was very tidy in its ending in terms of wrapping things up. I mean, there weren't a whole lot of loose ends in terms of the bigger picture. If they did yeah. want to end with Secrets of Dumbledore, they certainly could. I think they stopped the the gushing flow of uh, more questions than answers. You know, in terms of the plot, they actually tied up some of the loose ends that Crimes of Grindelwald brought up, like the blood pact and everything. So I think by that measure, Secrets of Dumbledore was good. But for a fourth film to really, like, I don't know about commercial success um, because what even is that in the COVID era, right? But in terms of me as a Harry Potter fan, fan of the Wizarding World series and fan of Fantastic Beasts, what would satisfy me in a fourth film is not just ceasing to raise more questions than answering. I want good answers for the questions. I want time spent. I want to be able to experience these characters, not as they're I don't know, trying to cross a huge ravine to prevent themselves from falling to their deaths. No, I want to see them hanging out. I want to see them drinking butterbeer or gig- giggle water together, you know, and 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 chatting about their lives or their differences. Not everything has to be one big action scene. And I feel like, you know, perhaps these Harry Potter films since Deathly Hallows Part Two, first Fantastic Beasts film accepted somehow miraculously have just been caught on this action sequence set piece to set piece kind of thing and it just doesn't translate for me yeah i i think we've talked a lot about how the core four have really been left behind and we finally got them coming back together at the end of the last movie so hopefully they'd be able to build off of that i think if they're able to leave some of the ancillary characters to the side that would also be helpful uh, because i think as we've discussed in the past too there's just too many characters for us to really wrap our heads around when we haven't had a book series as sort of the backdrop to this franchise where we could really get to know a lot of these characters more than we have up until this point. Yeah. And and, and seemingly characters have been discarded, right? Nagini was not in this film at all or even mentioned, but we don't know that they've been discarded. Like, like if the film could somehow explain or take the time to be like, yeah, Nagini's not going to be with us the rest of the picture. Thanks, folks. Um, that would be great because I'd love to see, to your point, a more scaled down cast of characters that we could just focus on. I feel like the movie would benefit from that, but it's just this non-communicative style of she's just not in the movie 
that makes us question, is there more for that character to do in this franchise? And then the other question people have been asking, um, I've seen like Yusuf Kama, for instance, who was in Secrets of Dumbledore looking great. And I really liked that he was in this movie with something to do. But the question I saw uh, posed to us probably by one of our patrons was, did he really need to be in the movie? So characters who are getting a plot, like what what part of character development was there for Yusuf in this movie, which he's, he's in the whole movie. He's one of the group of like the sinister six, are we calling them that tries to fool Grindelwald? The sexy what, six, the sexy six. But what, what ultimately does Yusuf do for the film? What happens in the plot that Yusuf is in, integral to that he needed to be there? And the reason I ask that question is, as we're talking about kind of moving characters to the side, uh, and characters like Nagini that just weren't in this film at all, they're also keeping characters that served no function to the overall story. So so they could pare it down even more unless there's something that Yusuf has to do in the fourth film or the fifth film that's going to make his inclusion in the third one make more sense. It's just messy because I miss when it was simpler and I'm always chasing that dragon of getting back to a Fantastic Beasts film that was just about Beast being loose in New York City and not about Grindelwald and Dumbledore. But ever since they chose at the end of the first film to head, you know, that that direction of this is going to be about the Wizarding War and Dumbledore's defeat of Grindelwald, they've kind of just been locked on this path. And I'm no longer having the sense of enjoyment that I got from the first film in any of the sequels. That's that's quite a statement. I, I mean, I might say something here that's a little bit unpopular, but I think part of the reason around keeping use of common in the film was for diversity. Right. But is it really, is it really earned? Is it really diversity? If you have him in the movie as just a picture, it's tokenism is what that is. Right. Totally. And, and I think what happened though, is that the story in crimes of Grindelwald got so complicated that they had to try and, as we were saying earlier, tie up a lot of loose ends and they really probably ran into a lot of difficult ways to try and achieve that. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like, I, I don't disagree with you. I thought Yusuf's role in this film in particular was just so minimized. Uh, and we did talk about how there was a particular scene that was cut where he explains himself a little bit better. However, yeah. his functional role throughout the film just took such a backseat to anybody else, really. I mean, Bunty had more screen time than he did, and he was a much more pivotal character in the second movie than she was. And he has really a very strong tie to what's going on, given what happened to Lita. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is that on paper, there's nothing like fruitless about his character. There's a lot of really interesting things, even his sacrifice in this film to give up presumably lose forever his memory of his sister is a really interesting thing for the plot but it's just not it's done but it's not addressed and it's not we don't understand why he's giving that up why he needed to join Grindelwald what was accomplished as a result of that so really it's just that this lack of follow-through on a whole like I don't think there's no idea what to do with Yusuf. I, I'm just saying it's not being executed or with any of the characters, really. It's not being executed as cleanly as, or, or even just in a straightforward manner or even at all. All right. So one question I did want to ask though, in terms of what we could get in Fantastic Beast 4, Fantastic Beast 5, it, it would probably have to be in the next movie, not in the finale, is what about a flashback film? 
Hmm. How do you mean? <laughs> it, it is tough, but I think that it would be nice to go back and see how this all came to fruition between Dumbledore and Grindelwald from Godric's Hollow all the way up until present day. Obviously, we would need to have some present day moments included, but I think that really one of the only ways that they can continue this franchise forward is having a movie that looks to the past a little bit. Well, I'm not sure that I agree that they need it, but I will say that I genuinely love um, the fact that they brought back Jamie Campbell Bauer and I believe his name is Toby Regbo uh, as young Albus and young Gellert in Crimes of Grindelwald for the Mirror of Erised scenes. Um, those those actors being able to reprise their roles, essentially being like the only actors, unless you count Michael Gambon in the trailer, uh, to reprise the role from the Harry Potter films in the Fantastic Beasts series, it's very, very cool. But it was understated. They didn't have any dialogue that appeared in the film because it wasn't a flashback. It was just an appearance in the mirror. But I would love to see them actually film scenes with those actors. I would probably say they could play it younger than they are at this point. They were probably teenagers or young adults when they were first cast in Deathly Hallows 12 years ago, but by this point are pretty old. But still, I would like to see scenes with the two of them. I don't know that you need it to tell this story. This story is how did Dumbledore defeat Grindelwald? What are the stakes? They used to love each other. Now they don't. Um, I don't need a backstory that explains that. I guess for me, I'm just struggling to see how they fill a fourth film. I would go back to a point that was raised in a previous episode about how if Grindelwald had stayed in power, then you have your fourth film mm. because he was immediately chillinized. I think I just coined a new <laughs> phrase by the real chillin, not the fake chillin. He was out chillin'. Yeah. That now, where do you go? That's why I think this film was neatly packaged up at the end. And I don't know that we're getting another Fantastic Beast film. And we talked about the uh, Potter Hogwarts nostalgia factor. I don't know how much more they can really hang their hat on that anymore. I know, I think you said we spent close to 21 minutes at Hogwarts, but we didn't really have to. There was nothing of substance that was there other than to like make us feel good that we were finally back in the place that we all grew up in. But that's what you get when you want a film that has that throwback, that nostalgia. I'm saying that seeing, wanting to see youthful Grindelwald and Albus is the same exact way, is like wanting to see Hogwarts in these pictures. It doesn't belong. It's not necessary. We already know about Albus and Gellert's past from Deathly Hallows. I actually look at the the open question mark, right? The, the blank line on the horizon of what is Fantastic Beasts 4 going to be. And as ridiculous as I feel saying it, I'm optimistic because I think that the fact that there's sort of an open end, that they're not just fighting war endlessly for the next you know, 12, 15 years um, is exciting. It leaves open the possibility that there could be more of a character focus, more of a simple toned down focus. The only example I have of this, and I heard this recently, is if you think about Prisoner of Azkaban, widely agreed by many people that we've spoken with to be the best Harry Potter book. Uh, would you agree? Oh, I thought you were going to say Phil. And I was going to say, oh, wait, hold on a second. It, even I would disagree with that. But yes. Um, but the book, right? Yes. The book, Prisoner of Azkaban, is untouchable. A lot of people love that book. Yeah. So Voldemort's not in it. And your point, what, what are you getting at by saying that he's not in it? I want the equivalent in Fantastic Beasts film. 
I want a Fantastic Beast film in the middle of the saga without Grindelwald. I want it. Because what do you gain in return? In Prisoner of Azkaban, Peter Pettigrew, we learn about him and he's the reveal at the end. And eventually we know he then scampers off and builds up Voldemort, allows for Voldemort's return. But book three, widely considered to be the best, does not really have Voldemort in it. Even book two doesn't really, it's young him. But what I'm saying is you can tell a film that advances the story, that builds the character, that has a great friggin' plot without the villain being such a presence. And in Crimes of Grindelwald and in Secrets of Dumbledore, Grindelwald was such this presence that I think it makes everything else suffer. And so I want to see a Fantastic Beast 4 that, just like Prisoner of Azkaban the book, did not have the main villain in it. I want to see a movie that lacks Grindelwald, that just focuses on the heroes. They're accomplishing something. Maybe it seems minor. Maybe it has more of an impact later. We don't know, but I want them to slow it down because all this war and all this death is kind of ridiculous. All right. Well, I think we solved it, right? We know well, I will what say, Warner Brothers needs to do moving forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I will say th- there are two types of fans, and I think you're one and I'm the other. And I'm getting plenty of feedback of people that say beasts are boring. The first film was lame. I love the beast. I thought the first well, film thank, thank was the best film to date. And I think all right. it was a, another dive into the wizarding world that we had all been waiting for up until that point. And it just, especially with the twist at the end, it just pivoted too quickly. I think we all agree on that, right? Well, I, no, I, I, I do agree with you. So, so, But I am hearing that there are a lot of people who think that the Dumbledore and Grindelwald stuff being told in Fantastic Beasts is the reason to see Fantastic Beasts, is where it is. And I could not disagree more. But there, you're always going to have those people that were so big in Harry Potter fans, and they want to see this relationship between Dumbledore and Grindelwald unfurl. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's an opinion, and it's a point of view. But I'm not here to see Grindelwald and Dumbledore. That's old news to me. I'm here for the beasts and everything that they could have done, and that's what I want for movie four. Right. You, you want to know how we get to 1945, because you already know what happens between Dumbledore and Grindelwald, except how, ultimately, Grindelwald is defeated. We... That's a mystery. That's a secret uh, that I think we all want to see play out on screen. Or and your at least- theory is amazing. I want to see your theory come true. That's my one interest in in seeing that. You know, which which is how Grindelwald loses all magical power. That's nuts. Right. I love that idea. But yeah, I I just think that you know to wrap it up, there are definitely two opposing views. But I just want to see Newt and Tina build a house. Get some puff skeins. We know that they, we know their names. They are going to have pets. Like, let us actually see these characters live. Don't just have them dangling off a cliff with a manicure at the bottom of it and call that character development. Let, let us show us their downtime and I will see it. And if the film doesn't make $200 million in opening weekend, I will keep going back to the theater to get that box office draw up because that's what I want downtime. Yeah, I'll leave it at. I don't think we're getting another Fantastic Beast film. I think this is <laughs> the end of the the franchise. Dumbledore was walking off into the sunset. I do think we will transition to something like an HBO Max series where the rest of the story will play itself out. So we will get a conclusion. I just don't think it's going to happen on the big screen. I think you're right. I think there might even be like something like a statement released too. This is what happened. Well, they were very willing to postpone 
the fourth film even before the third film made it into theaters. So what does that tell you? It means they got to figure out stuff on the back end. And there's a lot to figure out. We know that this series is riddled with controversy. We don't need to get into that any more than we already have. But what we do need to get into is our muggle mailbag. I'm excited. Nice transition. I forgot you're the king of those. You know, when I'm allowed to, you know, a lot of times I just have to sit back and let Andrew do his thing. Well, yeah. I mean, he does his thing incredibly well too. He does. He also knows all the technology, which, you know, but now we are experts. (laughs) I'm referring to a step-by-step document that Andrew laid out in advance for me to use. So that's what makes us experts though. That's what makes us experts. (laughs) Experts. Yeah. Because if you don't have the knowledge, know where to look to find the knowledge. Exactly. Very Dumbledorean of you. All right. So our first muggle mail comes from Kara. Uh, These first couple of emails, by the way, are about Fantastic Beasts. And uh, she has a question about the Blood Pact. She says, hello, muggle casters. I just listened to episode 561 and have a couple of comments. I like the way the Blood Pact was destroyed watching the scene. I was thinking that Albus's love for his brother and nephew was greater than his love ever was for Grindelwald. And that was what broke the pact apart. When Dumbledore and Grindelwald started dueling, I immediately thought that this would be where Grindelwald was defeated, thus ending the series with this movie. I would be okay with that if next we got a movie or book series with Laley Hicks as the main character. Thanks for a great podcast. I love that the idea of a bait and switch, that they'd be like, okay, Grindelwald's over, but uh, here's two Laley movies. I also really like what she pointed out about how it was his love for his brother and his nephew that ultimately trumped his love for Grindelwald. Although just minutes later, they're like hands on the chest. So I'm not <laughs> so sure about that. No, as a theory, I like it a lot. Um, and and it could have been one of the adding factors uh, to why it was able to inevitably be destroyed. I don't think we will ever know for sure. Yep. But um, okay. So our next email comes from Mike. It's also about the blood pact. Mike says, loved Secrets of Dumbledore, but it had its flaws. Still the best of the three. I think this guy is another one who's like, yeah, Dumbledore and Grindelwald, give me more of that. Like all of you, I was disappointed in the final fight scene. It should have been bigger and longer, but on the other hand, they have to save the ultimate fight scene for the 1945 battle. I think there should have been more serious consequences for breaking the blood pact, which brings me to my theory. When Grindelwald said, who's going to love you now? I think this foreshadows serious consequences for Dumbledore that, in fact, he will always be alone from now on. Thoughts? That's interesting. Well, let's not forget that Grindelwald has the opportunity, the ability, not the opportunity, to see the future, right? He's a bit of a seer. (sighs) Is seer the right word for him? I I think it counts. He's not Trelawney level, but... He, he has that ability to see the immediate future and perhaps he sees something for Dumbledore. I guess this wouldn't necessarily count as the immediate future. It, maybe it's more so down the line, but yeah, Dumbledore becomes quite the um, loner, right? I think it's fair to say mm-hmm. uh, for, for the remainder of his life, as far as we know, right? Yeah. I mean, what's the male version of Spinster, right? Um, he's just kind of unmarried, unloved after this. I wonder if, so I love this theory, getting back to Mike's email about there being a consequence for the blood pack. Like maybe because you pour your your love or you channel your love into something like a blood pact, 
maybe there's like a, the universe is really like monogamous about this. And after that pact is destroyed, you don't get your love back. Like your your capacity to feel those things for somebody is destroyed. And that could also relate to your eventual Grindelwald theory. Like maybe parts of both of these men are slowly just disappearing or becoming destroyed. Right. And and let's not forget that this could be tied back to the very opening scene of the movie where Dumbledore confesses his love for Grindelwald. So this could just be a moment where Grindelwald gets the opportunity to kind of throw it back in Dumbledore's face a bit, right? And that said, though, I agree with you. I really like this theory from Mike. And perhaps Grindelwald does have a little bit of insight into Dumbledore's future, and he sees him being alone, which is really tragic in a way. Uh, Dumbledore never, to our knowledge, finds love. Uh, maybe he does at Hogwarts in his job with the students. I, I think that's fair to say, right? I think I think he loves his job. I think he loves the students. I think he loves Harry. He says as much in, in the series. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that Grindelwald doesn't need to have seen the future in order for him to make that comment and in order for that comment to sting. Because I also read that line as like, Kind of not a dejected boyfriend, but like, oh, if 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 I'm not good enough for you, if I won't love you, who will? As kind of like a sting at the end, like a barb in his remark. But I do love the idea of him having this precognitive sort of insight and or being hindered. I think our listeners are one of the greatest uh, parts of doing this podcast is, you know, your theories are very exciting. Next email comes from Alex, uh, another Fantastic Beast theory. I really like this one. Uh, I wonder if these movies are going to have Jude Law's Dumbledore recite the same lines we see Dumbledore yelling in agony after drinking the potion in Half-Blood Prince. Using the exact same lines might be some major fan service. I don't think so, Uh, but I could see it working. What do you think? Wow, this is really neat. (laughs) I just got to chill. It. It depends on when that occurred because wasn't it um doesn't he say things like hurt hurt me not them and I'm the one you want and I kind of think that the theory is that he was reliving the moment of his sister's death. So if he does say those lines and if it's Jude Law or in this case Toby Regbo might say them um how we would get kind of confirmation about the circumstance and the context of when they occurred. Right. So the them is referring to both Ariana and Aberforth, presumably. And I do think we probably missed the opportunity for that when Jude Law's Dumbledore explains to Newt what happened to Ariana, that in fact, she was an Obscurus. I think that just kind of, I don't know that we're going to get that opportunity to go back and see that moment again. I think we got an explanation as opposed to a flashback. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that may have replaced it. He did, uh, yeah, the quote is, don't hurt them, please hurt me instead. Um, so I think somebody, probably Grindelwald, is threatening his family um, and Dumbledore had to step in. So the event itself is in the past. I would say our likelihood of seeing it is in one of those flashbacks that you really want for a movie four or five. Here's a email from Ashley. She writes, I wanted to ask how the panel would approach a conversation where somebody's main issue with the film Secrets of Dumbledore is that it was too gay. In my opinion, in my opinion, it wasn't gay enough. 
When I saw somebody I know say this, I finally understood Harry's chess monster from the books because mine was ready to pop out alien style. There's lots of things to kind of pick on this film for, but the very little blatantly gay moments we get are not it. Get me out of this Bible-beating hell I live in called Oklahoma. Well, Ashley, uh, I've discussed this with Micah before the episode, and we're going to be sending you two one-way tickets out of Oklahoma to Chicago. It's a very blue city. Uh, Write us with your message, and and we'll cover all your moving expenses. Just kidding. Um, We can't help you there, but we can help you in terms of giving advice. I think that this is a a tough situation. How could somebody think, right? That Secrets of Dumbledore is too gay. I don't know that you and I are the best people positioned to answer this question. However, uh, we can take a uh, a shot at it. I I don't know. Like I don't go into a movie wondering whether or not it's going to be to this or to that. Um, I think that this was part of the story, right? Dumbledore's love for Grindelwald, Grindelwald's potential love for Dumbledore. It clearly impacted how this entire series was going to play itself out. Um, I personally didn't feel like I was being hit over the head with a movie that was too gay. Like I not not for one moment. I think that everything was was handled very well. Like I I don't know if if people are pointing to it, and I know there are certain countries that have removed uh certain parts of the film. That's right. But and maybe it's just the the environment that we've both grown up in, um, who we are Supportive. as as individuals, yeah. how we see the world. You know, I don't know if um, Ashley had an experience where she went to see this movie at a theater in Oklahoma and people were walking out of it uh, or making comments during it about the film being too gay. Um, but a lot of times we hear, "Oh, you know, I was just beaten over the head with this." Like, there's none of that in this film. I don't know how. No, you feel. that would be like. That would be like going into this movie and being like, there was too much magic, right? Like, or an action film. There were too many explosions. Um, like, to me, this story that you're getting with Dumbledore and Grindelwald was always leading to this. Back at the very earliest, or at the very latest, it was from October 2007, when Dumbledore was revealed to have been in a gay relationship with Grindelwald by the author. So this moment is the culmination, like, the film was not too gay even though they call it explicit like it's explicitly gay there was not by my barometer too much content in that direction to be to feel at all uncomfortable although again everybody's mileage is going to vary right everybody's going to have a different barometer for this sort of thing and like what does that even mean if it's too gay like for your sensibilities for your liking it like that's one aspect of the movie there's still plenty else about this movie to love or not love so i would just say you know for the people that hear this or say this make a note because these people are not the accepting tolerant type that i would choose to surround myself with and maybe you don't have a choice. Maybe it's a geopolitical thing like you're, like you're suggesting, Ashley. But, you know, it's very difficult to approach this subject where somebody is is not uh, attuned to or, to or accustomed or comfortable with seeing a, a lifestyle that is a very much accepted and existing real valid lifestyle 
It's it's yeah, kind of a shame. I, I think the way to look at it is you have a man who is being open and honest about his feelings towards somebody else. And I think that as we talked about, it's a really important point in terms of how he felt about this other person because it informs his actions. It informed his yep. actions previously. And he, I think, really did need to confront Grindelwald in the way that he did in the opening scene to make it clear that why all of this is happening around not just him, but Newt and everybody else is because of how he feels still probably, we see it at the end of the film, towards Grindelwald. And he's just being open and honest about his feelings. And yeah, I don't see that as being to anything. He's just being honest. That's a that's a great point too. And yeah, I mean, honesty, open emotional vulnerability. I think maybe that's what might have upset this person that they're seeing a male hero in Dumbledore that is emotionally open and honest. And I think too many boys are taught that that's not cool to be open and honest. And you don't have to be gay to be open and honest. I think that Dumbledore as a gay icon and one who has close relationships with men but loves the baddest boy of the lot is a very interesting and sympathetic character that I don't blame this film for focusing on. And in fact, much as I say about Dumbledore and Grindelwald being part of this other saga, um, my feelings toward it, I loved Jude Law in this film and I loved Dumbledore in this film. And, and his confidence and how he responded. And Mads, and Mads. Yeah, everybody in this film was fantastic. And I think that Dumbledore and Grindelwald, Mads and, and, and Jude Law played it very well. So- you know, if somebody's seeing this movie and saying it was too gay, don't show them Moonlight. Uh, and you know, I would I would seriously consider who I go to see movies to. It's not like Dumbledore and Grindelwald were making out every you know opportunity was, they were on screen nothing. together. I yeah, I don't I don't agree with this um, take at all. I hope that we helped, Ashley. I know that we weren't, uh, you know, having to defend ourselves in during this moment. But it, and even it just, if they uh, were making out, people make out. Deal with it. People make out. <laughs> All right. Oh yeah. wow! This next email I need a drink after this. Um, okay. From Anne Katrine on Dumbledore planning the assassin attempt. Uh, she says, "Hi, Mugglecast. Thank you for your show." I just listened to the last episode about Eulalie Hicks, and I have a few things to add to your discussion about why she was paired with Jacob for the candidate dinner. You agree that Dumbledore sends Laylee because she's a very powerful witch in defensive magic. In the scene, Dumbledore says that he believes there will be an assassin attempt and that Laylee has good defensive magical skills and therefore should go. So you're right. However, Dumbledore does not give a reason for sending Jacob, so why do they have to go together? And why does Dumbledore think there will be an assassin attempt? I have a suggestion. Dumbledore wants Queenie back on his side for good reasons. It is too dangerous to have a powerful legilimens like her working for Grindelwald. Dumbledore is plotting to win her back, and this plan involves using Jacob. Dumbledore knows that Queenie will go with Grindelwald to the candidate dinner. Jacob and Queenie will therefore see each other, which might help Queenie be reminded of how much she misses Jacob. However, Dumbledore knows that this situation also implies a great risk. Seeing Queenie with Grindelwald might provoke Jacob and he might end up doing something stupid, especially now provided with a wand. Maybe Dumbledore even wants Jacob to make an assassin attempt because it signals very clearly to Queenie 
that he wants her back and is willing to fight for it, thereby winning her trust. Obviously, to make this plan work, Dumbledore knows that Jacob needs some protection, therefore he's paired with Laylee. Once again, we see the Dumbledore we know so well, manipulating, withholding his intentions, and putting friends at risk. However impressively clever. Hugs from Anne. She also has a PS. Thank you for your character discussions. They're my favorite episodes. I hope you'll do one about Grindelwald soon. I think we know much more about his persona after watching The Secrets of Dumbledore. To me, he is more human than a monster. He shows affection, has a sexuality, has a moral compass, even though it's a questionable one. And I would appreciate your discussion about that. Maybe you could even enlighten us about his past, his family history, and so on. Huh. Interesting thoughts. Um, yes. So Dumbledore planned the assassin attempt. Kind yeah, of sort of. like in, he spoke it into being by being like, hey, I hear there's going to be an assassination attempt. And then when the characters get there at the 11th hour, they're like, oh, it's us. Um, yeah, I think that it's it's weird because it, it runs contradictory to what Dumbledore says of Jacob, you know, his pure heart. And he's got so much love and his capacity and he shouldn't be shying away from that. While at the same time, he presumably sent him to go kill his buddy. Um, so, you know, it's like, is somebody who's pure of heart going to just immediately go into an assassination and is what we saw Grindelwald doing or what we saw Jacob doing with Grindelwald an assassination attempt? I don't even think it qualifies if it weren't for you, Lily, who, you know, made it look as though he was actually casting a spell. Yeah. I think it was all just a matter of convenience, uh, because it's Grindelwald who, claims Jacob to be the assassin, right? Yeah. It's hard to know because then Dumbledore would need to be in Grindelwald's mind, which they've obviously spent a lot of time together. They know each other intimately. Take that as you will. Uh, But what I mean is maybe he anticipated how Grindelwald was going to respond. And so that's a lot of just dumb luck. And I think that's the Mm -hmm. same kind of luck though that he hopes to get with the whole plan that he puts into motion with Snape and Harry at the end of Deathly Hallows. So luck certainly plays a part into all this, whether or not he really anticipated Jacob as an assassin. I don't know. I have a hard time believing it. It's very well thought through though. Yeah. I think uh, the only one thing I thought of when you were talking was the one consistency I can spot between the Grindelwalds uh, played by Johnny Depp and played by Mads Mikkelsen is his uh, using one person as an example in a crowd setting. So I'm thinking about when the Aurors uh, killed that woman during the Père Lachaise uh, scene. And, you know, Grindelwald was slowly stoking the flames for his followers to attack the Aurors, and the Aurors reacted in kind. Then the woman falls to the ground, dead, and he walks over to her and cradles her neck and is like, ah, you see what they've done. Um, You know, Mads is the same way. Mads is Grindelwald with with Jacob. I mean, he couldn't have predicted, I don't think anyone could have predicted that Jacob would raise his wand. Jacob, more than anyone, knows that it's not going to do anything. Um, so I don't understand why that happened, but Mads is totally the type of guy, or Grindelwald's totally the type of guy to go, ah, look, assassin, and this this muggle, which he says later in the film, uh, is was going to kill me, and we can't trust muggles at all. <laughs> yeah. So, interesting theory there. Yeah. We like that. Thank you, Anne. Now we heard from Ashley. Currently listening to your discussion about the Newt Lita Theseus triangle. Here's my thoughts no one asked for. <laughs> Lita, uh, wrong. We did ask for them. Send us an email, everybody. Lita has poor self esteem. Her mother died. 
Her father blamed her and never loved her. She sees herself as unworthy of Newt and thinks she will ruin his life. She's the reason he was booted from Hogwarts. She thinks she's done enough damage in Newt's life, so she shuns Newt's love because she's afraid. She chose Theseus because it's what she should want, a war hero with a steady heroic job at the ministry. It's societal pressure. Maybe I'm projecting, but there it is. Peace and love, Ashley. Wow. There is a lot to unpack there, and I'm not sure that I am equipped to do that. (laughs) Yeah, so the theory that Lita is with Theseus because she feels she's caused Newt too much trouble. People make their own choices, and if this is the case, um, it is sad, it is sympathetic, but Newt is simultaneously not fighting for Lita. So the reality of of Lita being with Theseus um, is as much on Lita as it is on Newt as it is on Theseus, because Newt, if he did have feelings and if he acknowledged his feelings for Lita properly, would have stepped in and said, no, you're not a burden on my life. I want you in it. And, you know, kind of gone from there. And as far as Theseus is concerned, Theseus shouldn't feel bad that Lita is um, under this theory, making him the second choice. You should fight for not being anyone's second choice, but ultimately he as well is choosing to be in a relationship with this person who has had a relationship or history with his brother. And so the weirdness there is also partly on him because I think everyone knows what everyone knows and he's choosing that as well. Yeah, that's certainly interesting, um, putting it back on Newt a little bit as well, as opposed to having so much focus of this be on Lita. Because I agree with you, if Newt was just a little bit less awkward, and I say that as an awkward person myself, but we see it in how he interacts with Tina in the Fantastic Beast franchise, perhaps this would have all played out a bit differently. You got to fight for what you love. And and in those moments where you're feeling down and you're not feeling worthy of somebody else's love... It's that person has an opportunity to show you that they care. Um, and, you know, a, a hero in the traditional sense uh, would take the time to do that. And Newt has a lot else going on. And so that's why I think he never uh, stepped forward and insisted on a relationship with Lita. So good theory, though. I like this characterization a lot. I think it rings true because it, of course, comes from a place of self-reflection, as Ashley said. Next email is from Sky, who is age 12. And uh, this is about the best example from every house. Hi, MuggleCast. My screen name is Sky. Okay. Screen names. That, that's a throwback. Uh, oh, And I wow. am a proud- tw- Yeah. It, it, does Instant Messenger even exist anymore? What's your- I don't think- I've been trying to download it. When is this email from? Serious Black 2007? <laughs> Okay, this was not this was not one of our vintage. I didn't add one of the vintage uh, mails to the to the episode, right. but it could have been because they talk about screen names. All right. Well, Sky is a proud Raven Puff, uh, so a nice blend of the two of us, Eric. Uh, uh, she is twelve years old and been listening for about a year. Her favorite book is Deathly Hallows and movie Sorcerer's Stone. Uh, an idea for a Muggle Mail discussion or episode is who is the best and worst representation for each house. I think it's a cool topic because there are many different characters that could be the best or worst representation. Thanks for reading. Hope you have a great day or night. Uh, this is actually a really cool discussion topic. And, and I don't know that we want to necessarily like jump into detail here, but 
We certainly could do an entire episode on the best and worst representations from each of the Hogwarts houses. I was going to say, I feel like this would have been a topic we touched on on each of our house-themed episodes, which were very recently uh, by the standards of this 16-year-old podcast. Wow, this podcast is older than this person. Um, so I would say those recent episodes, because I think when when talking about Ravenclaw, certainly we would have talked about the various types of Ravenclaw, because there's the Luna Ravenclaw, and then there's like the Lockhart, Lockhart you know. Yeah, yeah. All the so, baddies. So who knew? In terms of all the baddies are Ravenclaws. We know this for a fact. Um, so I, you know, but I was thinking quickly off the top of our head, the best example, I would say, in terms of being the chivalrous Gryffindor or the kind Hufflepuff, right? What would you say, Micah? Uh nearly headless, Nick. If we're talking chivalrous. Oh yeah. You so you wouldn't you wouldn't want uh Sir Cadigan for that? <laughs> uh, maybe we don't even know he was Gryffindor. Actually, the house heads are the real good example of this. <laughs> so, yeah. McGonagall for Gryffindor, Sprout for Hufflepuff. It's it's a little easy, and there is some bleed between like Flitwick and McGonagall, for instance, could have been in each other's houses. We know that from extended canon. Um, but I would say, quick and dirty, you know, the exemplary um, Gryffindor is McGonagall, the exemplary Hufflepuff is Sprout. The exemplary Slytherin is Snape. And as far as Ravenclaw, Luna. Let's just say it. Yeah, I think Luna. I don't think we we get enough Flitwick uh, to really make him the exemplary. I, I think we're given Luna for a reason. And Luna is vastly intelligent and and extremely underrated in her intelligence factor just because Everybody sees the upside down quibbler uh, when they think of her in their mind's eye, at least I do. But she's very, very smart as well. Yeah, agreed. Hmm. Glad we agree. Speaking of uh, Ravenclaw. Chloe, though. Oh. Well, Chloe is fighting me on uh, on the Slytherin front. Snape is not the ideal Slytherin. You take that back. All right. Should I say Salazar Slytherin then? The mass murderer or person who left a killing snake in his special Slytherin chamber for special Slytherins to one day unlock? What about Slughorn? Well, the house trait for Slytherin is ambition, and therefore, thusly, Slughorn would be an excellent character. Draco. Um, because he is very ambitious and socially. No, we don't even. Andromeda doesn't count because she doesn't have more than three lines of dialogue in the film. Sorry, Chloe. Or in the, in the books. I like Draco as a choice as well. Yeah, we'll go with that. All right. Okay, here's an email from Justin. Uh, your typical Ravenclaw on Fox Feather. Um, hey, MuggleCast, I've heard this theory running around. Wanted to get your thoughts. We see a phoenix throughout the trailers for Secrets of Dumbledore, which we assume to be Fox. Given the timeline, will we see Albus give two of Fox's feathers to Ollivander to create Tom Riddle's wand and Harry's wand? Given what we know, Voldemort starts school around 1938, and this movie takes place before the beginning of World War II, which began in 1939. It only makes sense that this would be the only time that these two wands could have been made. Thanks for providing my weekly escape from the muggle world. I love this. There's your fantastic Beast 4 storyline. That's what happens. It's all about uh, Albus takes Newt aside and is like, Newt, you've got to get this to London. I'm not allowed in London, but you've got to get this to Garrick Ollivander. And it's the this pouch that is revealed at the end of the film to be two feathers from Fox, who he's not even in possession of at this time. 
So there's a little bit of a, a plot there that needs to happen. Newt, I agree. Newt needs to track down Fox and get the Phoenix feathers, and then Dumbledore takes it from there. I, no, not compelling. I think it's good. Uh, I think you it's as like good it. as anyone. You like it? Uh, well, that, 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 I think it's good. I think it's totally serviceable. And let's get to the next email. Yeah, the next email is from Becky, who says, uh, where did Dumbledore go in Order of the Phoenix? And I think we may have talked about this a bit uh, when we did our chapter by chapter segment. Uh, but Becky was rereading Order of the Phoenix, chapter 28, and listening to our episode on the next chapter. And she started to wonder where Dumbledore went after he vanished with Fox. What if he left the office but returned as soon as they shut the door? He never said where he was off to, and I guess being in his office might not count as hiding. Do you think he was in there all that time and cackled to himself every time Umbridge tried to get in? <laughs> Possible. Possibly. I do I do like to think that Dumbledore has like a, a ring camera or like a video and he's able to he posts it at the gargoyle. So when you when you try and enter a, an incorrect password, he can just like pop up and see people guessing the wrong thing. Um, yeah, I, I genuinely don't know. This is one of the questions that I'm most interested in knowing the answer to. It has next to no relevance to the plot of any of the other books or films, but it's one of those curiosities because he's not shown to be anywhere in particular. And yet the order does get him when he's needed for the ministry, but that's months later. Right. I, I would think Maybe that- he's got a summer home? Yeah, he's probably got a couple of hideouts. He could have gone to Grimmauld Place at this time, right? Where we are in terms of the timeline. Uh, maybe he used one of Sirius's old hideouts uh, you know, that uh, he corresponds with Harry from. But I got to mm. think with all of the connections that this man has all over the world, he, he was probably in a safe space just- Figuring out what's next. Wasn't there some joke somewhere about him going somewhere tropical and having like sunscreen on his nose yeah. and like scabby knees? I think he just was, took a vacation. Point. Much, much well deserved. He just took a vacation. Yeah, very well deserved. So this next email comes from Molly. Uh, I like this one. Hi, Mugglecasters. I am rereading Deathly Hallows and I have an important question. When everyone ends up at Shell Cottage, Harry and Ron talk with Ollivander about the wands they won at Malfoy Manor. Ollivander says the following, quote, Oh yes, if you are any wizard at all, you will be able to channel your magic through almost any instrument. The best results, however, must always come whereas there is the strongest affinity between wizard and wand. These connections are complex, an initial attraction, and then a mutual quest for experience, the wand learning from the wizard, and the wizard from the wand. So my question is, can wizards do magic with spoons? Did not see that coming. Why was Hagrid using pieces of a broken wand all this time when he could have used a spoon? Thank you for any input. I've been listening to MuggleCast since I was 12 and I am now 28. Wow. Figured it was finally time to write in with a pressing question. Cool. Uh, yeah, Micah, can wizards use spoons? This made me think of like, is Hagrid a descendant of Alakazam from... <laughs> From Pokemon, <laughs> doesn't he use spoons? Yeah, well, he's based off. Uh, I believe it's um, a magician named Gendel, or or uh, not Ken? Yeah, Gendel, I think it is, um, who bent spoons. And I also think of the Matrix. I don't see why there wouldn't be a reason for 
a wizard to be able to use a spoon, maybe a spoon with a magical core <laughs> smelted into it. Because uh, the whole thing is the wand is your antenna, um, right? So people are magic. Wands have magical properties. And, you know, maybe Ollivander would say they have personalities and are magical. But ultimately, it exists as an, a huge antenna to channel the magic within yourself. Uh, we see wizards do wandless magic. We see wizards do nonverbal magic. The magic comes from the wizard themselves. So anything that they can use, that they can hold, that will channel and maybe focus some of the energy that is in the universe and around them, I think they could use. Yeah, I think you could Why use not? a spoon or a fork or a knife. Right, let's just say a spork. There could be magical sporks out there. We don't know. Yeah. I think it's perfectly plausible. Yeah, we, we didn't get to that point in the series where uh, wizards and witches were using anything other than wands to channel magic, other than, like you said, right. nonverbal spells. Uh, but yeah, why not? Spoons? Sure. Which would make <laughs> dining in the Great Hall quite interesting. Oh my God. It really would. It would be like a food fight. But it like a bit of a wizard duel. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fun, fun thought process there. Mm -hmm. uh, our final email today uh, comes from Trevor, age 10, and he wants to know about Dumbledore's age. Hi, Mogul Cast. I've been a fan forever. He's 10 years old, but he's been a fan forever, even, even <laughs> before he was born. Uh, I just wanted to send a short email on Dumbledore's age. Ever since I read the books, I've wondered why Dumbledore is so old. Like, sure, he's a wizard and everything, but even wizards have the same lifespans, right? Well, my theory is that Dumbledore just took some elixir of life. Love to hear your thoughts. Bye. P.S. I'm a Ravenclaw, 10 years old, and Andrew would love to hear this, uh, an Amazon Alexa listener. So I don't think wizards and witches necessarily have the same lifespan. I think we've seen examples of that right throughout the course, uh, not just of the series, but other information we've gotten from the wizarding world. I think generally they probably have a little bit longer of a lifespan than normal humans. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty much said as much. But I also like this theory, creative problem solving by Trevor to say that his good buddy, Nicholas Fumel, would have just given Dumbledore some elixir. He had it on hand. The only thing I would add to this, though, is to tell our young friend, um, and thank you for writing in, Trevor, that in greater literature, there's an archetype, which is to say characters that are well known for being a certain way. And Dumbledore fills the archetype of mentor to Harry Potter. Um, and usually, especially in fantasy books, the mentor character uh, or archetype is an old, 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 older than dirt wizard with long white hair. Um, you see this in Lord of the Rings. You may see it. it. It always looks a little differently, but it always serves the same function. So I think as a structure, Dumbledore needed to be older than them all because age corresponds with wisdom in your mind. When you think about an old mentor character. Right. Think of like a Merlin or a Yoda. Yeah, Merlin, for instance. How old was Yoda? He had to be pretty old. Uh, 800, oh, I want to say. Okay. It's either six or eight. I mean- when, when, No, there's that line. It was like, eight, when 800 years old, you turn, look as good, you will not. Compared to Yoda, Dumbledore is like a teenager. <laughs> yeah, basically. He also, he worked out a lot. You know, he was big into like goat yoga and- Oh, uh, huge in the goat yoga. Yeah. He gets, he hydrates a lot. 
I see him as like a big biker too. I could see him getting out and like, you know, cycling around the Hogwarts grounds, maybe Peloton. He would definitely that, be a Peloton. I had that right? one teacher. Mine was a choir teacher, but I had that teacher that biked both ways to school from like home for like several miles every morning. So like he'd always get to school at like 7 a.m. because he left his house at like 5.30 and biked eight miles. <laughs> uh, that's Dumbledore. Dumbledore bikes to Hogwarts in his youth. I think I see it. from the hollow man. Have we done it? Have we reached our final email? We, have. we made it all the way what, through the muggle what, mailbag. What a wonderful, this has been a lot of fun. It I, has. Like for me, I was not really worried that we could do it, but it's been a blast. So we're going to close the book on this week's mailbag with this email from Izzy. Izzy says, so I was wondering when I was listening to your episodes, I thought to myself, So we know that Voldemort is part snake, right? Well, he has his pet snake, Nagini. And I was wondering if Voldemort could possibly be related to Nagini or the Basilisk. I know it's a crazy theory, but it could be a possibility because we don't know who Tom Riddle's parents were. So could one of them be a snake? This is just an idea rattling around in my head. Heck, rattle. Uh, Would love to know what you think. I some emails sometimes stump me. I will admit, is Voldemort related to a snake? Well, I, yeah. I mean, I think if we trace his lineage back far enough, all the way to Slytherin, then perhaps there is somewhere in his heritage a tie to a snake. But I think for his parents, we know who his parents are: Merope Gaunt. And Tom Riddle Sr. And nothing that we know about them would suggest that they have an affliction like Nagini. Uh, so it, right. it's a little bit hard to draw those connections to either Nagini or the Basilisk. I mean, the Basilisk was Slytherin's monster uh, who he commanded because of just that strong connection that he had to snakes. And so this one's a little hard for me. That's what I think is, is at play here. Most of all is the correlation uh, of Slytherin to snakes. Um, So Voldemort in particular, uh, you know, modified his physical appearance in later life after he left Hogwarts to look, we assume as as snake like as possible maybe that wasn't the the goal maybe it was the result of whatever he was trying to do but red slits for eyes forked tongue we assume um you know the lack of a nose appearance on adult tom riddle aka voldemort is very snake like then you take Slytherin himself, who emphasized his own connection with snakes, the fact that he was a parcel mouth, that his monster that he alone could control was a was a giant snake, a killer snake, a basilisk. Um, you get a lot of connections to snakes just by association. It's like Salazar Slytherin was the number one snake fan. He had snake socks, he had snake pillows, he had snakeskin boots. Um, that he wore all over the place, you know, and that's different that than canon? being related. The snakes in boots. Oh yeah, snakeskin boots. They're famous. Oh. They're all over the the Slytherin common room. Still has a shelf for all of the snakeskin that Salazar wore. Um, see if Chloe agrees with me. But uh, yeah, I think that so that's that's really your the difference is as far as actually being related to snakes. I don't think at any point that was given, but he's their biggest fan. 
And so Voldemort also to drive up his uh, connection to Slytherin over his connection to the muggle Tom Riddle Sr., who was just nobody, some rich kid, um, he really chose to emphasize those features and the qualities that Slytherin himself would have prized. So I don't think he's related to snakes, but I think he's absolutely used snakes to base his entire aesthetic off of. As have I today with this green polo. You're looking very snake-like. I wasn't going to say anything. Yeah. But. All right. Well, that wraps up our muggle mailbag discussion. Thanks to everybody who sent in emails. And if you have feedback about today's discussion, you can contact us by writing or sending a voice message to mugglecast at gmail.com. Uh, just record a message using the voice memo app on your phone. You can also contact us via the contact form on mugglecast.com. Or you can leave us a voicemail on our phone. The number for that is 1-9203-MUGGLE. That's 1-920-368-4453. Next week, we will have Andrew and Laura back. I think it's safe to tease, safe to say, oh, wait, we won't because none of us will be back. We are taking a week off for Memorial Day. That is right. But what will we be doing the following week? I believe we are planning to do a commentary on the secrets of Dumbledore. Yes, we are fully expecting that Warner Brothers will be releasing the Secrets of Dumbledore film uh, to HBO Max, just as they did with the Batman recently, past the 45-day window of theatrical release onto streaming. And if that goes according to plan, we will be doing a live commentary special, which will be released as that next episode, MuggleCast 565, as our Secrets of Dumbledore commentary. And I cannot wait for it. It will be great. As we go through, I'll be frantically looking at my notes, trying to make sense of what I wrote (laughs) in real time. So it'll be wonderful. Get somebody to transcribe (laughs) them. Uh, I'm getting, I thought about transcribing them, but it only makes sense if I have the movie going on and I can go page by page and be like, what did I say here? Okay, now it makes sense in context. So looking, looking very forward to that. Well, uh, I think there's only one other thing left to do in this episode, and it is time for some quizage. Last week's question, what did first-year charm students do for their end-of-year exam? And the correct answer was that they had to make a pineapple dance across the desk, or tap dance in some cases. Congratulations to those who have sent the correct answer, including Boat Truck O, yes, another Weasley, Every Day I'm Huffling, Bang Ended Scoot, Legalize Gillyweed, Use of Comma, Comma, Comma Chameleon, Happy birthday, Andrew, Jessica, your friendly neighborhood Slytherin, and a small glass of gilded water left on the table at the Leaky Cauldron was a lost packet of Drupal's best going gum, but felt a change might be good. The names did not disappoint this week, Micah. No, though I'm kind of disappointed that somebody stole my comma, 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 chameleon name. <laughs> I have to have words with that person. It's time for next week's Quizage Question. During the cave scene, what does Dumbledore toast when he's about to drink the potion? And submit your answer to us via the MuggleCast website, MuggleCast.com slash Quizich. Or go to the MuggleCast website, click on Quizich in the nav bar, and submit via the form that you find there. Just a few other friendly reminders before we wrap up here. Make sure you're following MuggleCast for free in your favorite podcasting app. Leave us a review if they let you. 
I don't know why they wouldn't. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media. Our username is MuggleCast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and TikTok. I don't know why they left TikTok out. Shout out to Chloe for getting us on TikTok. We're doing great. It's great work. Follow us on all the socials. You know where to find us, at MuggleCast. Do it. Uh, But this has been a lot of fun, like you said, Eric. And don't forget, uh, as you pointed out, we are off next week. We will be back the following week. Assuming Secrets of Dumbledore is released on HBO Max, we will have our commentary as episode 565. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Micah, not Andrew. I'm Eric, not Laura. Bye, everybody. Bye.